How's it, how's it going? Good. How are you? Good. How was life? Good. I haven't uh, replenished my wine supplies still. Wow, that's sad. How is that sad? You should be, you should be happy for me. <laughs> Why? I think your wife would be more depressed without something to drink. <laughs> that's not a good attitude at all. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I'm saying, I'm saying, your situation is hopeless no matter how you look at it. So you might as well be drunk and enjoy it a little bit. <laughs> My situation is serious, not hopeless. Yeah. Okay. Leave what you want. All right. Well, uh, shall we get on with it? This great podcast that we do. Yeah. I feel like it should have been called Fox the Talking Head. That'd be better. And I feel like we should have had a scene of the talking head. Like yeah, I was, I was a little disappointed by that. Or like at ah, least he should have had... We'll talk about that head. later. We'll yeah. talk about this later. Right. This is stuff to be brought up when we discuss the film Fox and His Friends. Um, but now, hey guys, welcome to the show. Uh, my name is Hunter. I'm joined as I am every goddamn fucking week by... Hugh. Joined with your mouth at the <laughs> anus of... You know, we went over this. It's, it's We've revised it. It's on the, it's on the penis. Right, right. There's more variety there. So if you if you sound a little bit muffled, it's because your your voice has to travel through my digestive system up through my mouth. Yeah. So really, it's just one recording that we're doing right now. It's not. (laughs) Anyway, anyway, yeah. Today on the program, um, which is called Project A Plus, coming to you live from the. Seedy heart of Melbourne, Australia. What are, you, what are you scratching? Nothing. I'm not scratching anything. Jesus <laughs> Christ, man. Hands behind the back. I can't do that. I'll go crazy. You can go crazy. Make for good podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Screw you. You don't care about me. All you care about is the podcast. That's right. <laughs> um, so uh, on today's show... We are talking about three films. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm afraid you're with us for three films. I mean, more than that, presumably, but three like main films. We're going to be talking about First Man, a space movie. And then number two is uh, Ali Fear Eats the Soul. And number three is, of course, because uh, the natural sequence is First Man, Ali Fear Eats the Soul. And then the third one is obviously Fox and His Friends. Yeah, both of those last two are made of Yeah. So this will be the best episode yet. Uh, you hear, you've heard it here first. If it's not, you can have all of the money you spent on this podcast back. <laughs> um, Why? Why is it going to be extra special? Well, Hugh, I can't believe you forgot to mention that today's episode is an extra special episode because at the end of the show, we will be interviewing a very special guest. Alrighty. Okay. So, Hugh, shall we move on to our first film? Guess so. First man. Yeah, I'm the first man. I'm not the best man. I'm not the worst man. I'm just the. Okay. Um, so, let's pull up the summary. Okay. I'm sorry, this is so long. Why? <laughs> okay. Alright, well, now you make me feel embarrassed. <laughs> okay, so, First Man, 2018. <coughs> Sorry. Oh, you mean that Damien Chazelle film about the moon landing? <laughs> let me do it, let me do it. No, let me do it, okay. 
Oh, there's more. There's more to the film. <laughs> so, so you do it. <laughs> right. Uh, you made it so I can't stop laughing. Are you happy? <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Okay. First Man is about the a movie about the first man in space, Nell Armstrong. <laughs> oh, <wait. laughs> That's all I wrote. Cool. That's right, right? He is the first man in space. Yeah. <laughs> That's 100% accurate. Did you like that? Was this actually a long con? And you, that was all you <laughs> Yeah, it was. It is actually what I wrote for it. <laughs> Thank God. So, Hugh, what did you think of the movie First Man? So this is the movie that uh, tracks uh, Neil Armstrong's journey from test pilot to guy who walks on moon. Um, I saw it over a month ago, so... I'm going to be all over the place talking about this, so it'll be kind of incoherent, just because I didn't arrange my thoughts into any... So, uh, can you to answer the question list. of, did you like the film? Or did I like the man? film? Did I like the film? <laughs> who can like anything, really? Yeah. <laughs> I I guess I guess if I were to superficially comment on the film, I guess fine, I liked it. I mean how could you not like it is what I would say. And now I'll explain how I I didn't like it. Um Yeah, I didn't really like it actually. It's a shame. I'm not gonna expand upon that, so would you like to speak about uh, your reactions to it first? Because you saw it first, so therefore you I have did. to speak about it first. I liked it. That's it. That's all I got. Cool. Cool. So we, we will agree to disagree and move on like civilized people. Uh, sounds great. Sounds perfect. No judgments here. I don't think you're less of a man. because <laughs> I do think you're less of a first man, I must admit. Right. right. But I'm in the top ten, if you were ranking the men. Uh... Sorry, we don't have to. We don't have to get into it right now. So, if I understand you did not care for the movie first man. No, no, I don't think I did. I think there were. What I will say is, I found it a little bit frustrating because I could see glimpses within it of a better film. The film that I watched, but I thought it was ultimately uh, muddled. And I'll, I will I will speak in more uh, detail about that, but you have to give your impression first. Uh, I just thought it was well made, well acted, well shot. Well made, well acted, well shot. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I thought all the performances were very nice. As well um, as being well acted, the performances were good. <laughs> excellent work. <laughs> yeah, you should just delete the podcast. <laughs> Recording it, that sound. <laughs> Um, no, I just thought it was very rousing, and I... Think so it touched you as an American? It did. No, I would not say as an American. Or as a human. But, no. I feel like I liked it in that it was not a necessarily sympathetic picture of Armstrong. Mm. Um, and I liked sort of that tendency towards anti-epicness that is sort of found in the domestic sequences. Cool. So this is uh, Damien Chazelle's first film ever, in fact. <laughs> yep. That is correct. About Neil Armstrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. I was like, this is the first time he's actually decided to make a film about Neil Armstrong. Do you think there's something in that? Anyway, so what I was saying is, this is uh, Chazelle's first film, as has been noted, um, that does not focus on a musical milieu, right? So we had his uh, debut film, 
what's his name and what's his name on a park bench. God of Marvel. Which was a uh, low-budget sort of verite take on the musical. Apparently, according to something I read somewhere, I haven't seen it. Have you seen it? Nine. Okay. Uh, then his second film would have been Whiplash. Yes. Which I have also not seen. Which I have seen. Which sounded like it, it sound, sounds terrible, I must so Whiplash, say. <laughs> Whiplash was about an aspiring jazz drummer played by Miles Teller. And uh, mentored by the domineering J.K. Simmons. Uh, I actually quite enjoyed Whiplash for what it was. I don't think it was uh, sublimely brilliant, but I, I thought it, it pulled off what it tried to do. Um, and then there was La La Land, which I believe we both enjoyed somewhat. Yes. Although we don't think it was an unqualified success, we appreciated what it was trying to I do. I mean, really, what film is an unqualified success? Uh, besides Clifford, of course. What was the other film? Oh, yeah. Besides Clifford and Masson Anonymous. Mm, and Masson Anonymous, the two pinnacles of cinema. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> what are we talking about? Dave Giselle's. Okay, yes. Yeah, so, so, so on, on some sense, it looks like he's uh, broadening his approach, right? He's moving away from a world he's, he's more comfortable with. But then you look at it in more detail and you realize his predilections are intact, right? Yes. So, we have at the center of this film a driven, talented man. Yeah. I think the the main comparison here is with is, is with Whiplash more so than La La Land, because that was a very insular portrait of of one man's journey. In that case, to become an uh, amazing jazz drummer, and in this case, to walk on the moon. So, it is very much in his wheelhouse. I think. I think the way he's approached this story. It is the first film that he has uh, made that is not based on his own screenplay as well. That's true. So he, he has no credit on this screenplay. Whether he had input or not is another matter. Um, but I do think the screenplay is one of the problems with this film. I thought it was quite rote in places. Hmm. Namely all the places. Namely <laughs> <laughs> every place that had a screen. And the way he approaches the material is, is stylistically similar to, to what he's done previously. Uh, I definitely think he fits quite neatly into the prestige American school, the current prestige American school, um, sort of similar to people like Christopher Nolan, I think. And uh-huh. um, I guess he's a little bit more commercial, but J.J. Abrams, as I've talked about previously in the case of A Star is Born. But there is that aesthetic that is quite similar between all these directors of a lot of intense medium shots which gives it kind of this insular feel particularly in the case of Chazelle in in this film and Whiplash Um, and as well as that controlled shaky cam so it's not full-on shaky cam it's not like the Bourne films or anything like that but it's that uh, controlled shaky cam especially in the earthbound domestic scenes and I at this point I'm kind of weary with that approach and it just feels like a forced way of um injecting tension into a scene um, when I think there are more uh, interesting ways of doing that through the composition and performances and the material itself as opposed to just shaking the camera a bit. I think it's a false technique in some ways because it just creates an association with people with uh, documentary and a greater degree of realism as a result, but yeah. Can I be honest with you? I think you're a false technique. (laughs) I mean, that's a fair point and I retract all my comments. (laughs) Okay, thank you. (laughs) Well, please continue. Um, so, yeah. So, I, I, I was kind of uh, particularly 
bored with the uh, scene set on Earth. Mm-hmm. Chazelle's always been pretty effective at uh, achieving some sort of vis- visceral effect in showy sequences. So that there's the performance sequences in Whiplash, um, and in First Man, there are the sequences where the sequence where um, Armstrong goes to space for the first time. Yes. The sequences of, of Armstrong doing any of the test pilot stuff and the ultimate moon landing. So those are the most effective in this film. Um, and his techniques, I think, lend themselves to, to that kind of approach. So the interesting thing about this film, I think the place to start is the controversy over the depiction of the planting of the American flag on the moon, or rather the lack of the depiction of the planting of the American flag. We only see that in like one shot. And we don't actually see the famous image of them erecting it. So, yeah, so it's done. There was a controversy in the first place um, about this. But the interesting thing is the, res- the, the response of, the, of Chazelle and the producers, I'm not sure if it was Chazelle specifically, I can't really remember, but was that they wanted to sh- depict the moon landing as a human achievement, not just an American achievement, right? Yeah. Which is fair enough. But I think it's interesting when you actually look at the film itself, um, it's so specific to one man's experience that it doesn't seem to be interested necessarily in the moon landing as either a human achievement or a um, American achievement as much as it's interested in the perspective of this one person. Not necessarily saying it's Armstrong's singular achievement or anything like that, but it doesn't seem to be interested in showing the moon landing as a triumphant step for humanity. I don't know if you got that impression or not. I don't know if I... I guess I would disagree with you a bit there. Um, because obviously like, the the parts of the film gets most away from Armstrong are in the space sequences, right? And then and the, that way of like broadening out the film makes his sort of story seem a little, I don't know, small in comparison, I guess. I don't know. Like it, it, that's why I'm kind of unsure exactly what this film was, was what, what the conception of this film was and exactly what they were going for or hoping you to take from this by the end of it. Because I think the message is a little bit muddled uh, along the way. Um, so for me, it felt, uh, my perspective was it did feel more like it was wanting to really approach this really familiar story in a different way, which I think in conception is a, is a good approach to yeah. really get under how, how this was for this one person. How, what was their one, what was their experience? What was every step of the way? What was the sacrifices and trials that they went through to get to this point and reach the moon? It, the film itself, I think, was more interested in Armstrong than anything else, right? And that creates a couple of problems because we never really get inside Armstrong. The way Gosling playing is 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 somewhat distant. So in so in one sense, he's like well cast because he often seems like he's on a different planet. Yeah, but the, I mean, the character as conceived by Giselle is very distant. Yeah, yeah. Which 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 I think is but is a is is deliberate but because i think a lot of the overall story is kind of wrote and pat i think that plays against it in the end because i think it just means that he's a dull companion for most of the film or at least that's how i felt i guess i just disagree with you and i think the 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 integration of the family dynamic i had a lot of problems with but, but i do have to acknowledge that it's actually a really tricky problem in terms of how to depict his wife and his family because it's always going to be reductive, right? If you're telling yeah. the story of, of the guy who walks on the moon. Well, but that's the problem with making, like, 
I mean, any film about like a you know a large historical figure is so that they end up like dominating the narrative to what extent. Yeah, unless unless it was her story, really, then it's always going to be reductive to some degree. But even even if you're like, oh, I'm telling the story of Neil Armstrong's wife, like it's still pitched at that level. Well, she's still defined in relation. Yeah, in terms of in terms of him. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it, it is a really tricky problem. There's no necessarily. I'm not necessarily saying that there's a, a right answer to this, but I kind of wish it kind of went even more insular and didn't try to do too much with the family story. Um, I think it was right to show him as like an asshole and say the effect <laughs> it had on his family. I think that's fine. Yeah, I I I would say I liked how bad of a, of a father and husband he was. <laughs> but the plays the, the plays towards sort of fleshing that out and showing scenes uh, in which he's not even there and. and it tries to flesh out the, his wife's experience a bit more, um, played by Claire Foy. All she gets to do is be treated badly and be sad, basically. Yeah. And the, like, final moment of this film, like, so after he's, like, treated her terribly and gone through all these trials, etc., finally reached the moon, and he's come back and he's in quarantine, and um, then his wife can see him behind glass for the first time in a while. And they kind of have this moment where they touch the glass and he shows more emotion than he's shown like the entire film or more affection toward direct affection towards her than he's shown for at least most of the film. And that's like the crowning moment of this film is if like, what, what is that saying? Like it took them. Oh, see, I didn't really read it as, I don't know. I found it to be a more like an image more of like, there's an irrevocable divide between these two people. They'll never be able to like work it out. Well, that would be interesting, but like, I don't know. That's how I, that's how I felt about it. If it's, if, if he didn't make any gesture, I think that would have been a bold choice, right? If it, if it just showed, you know how initially when he sees her, when she comes into the room and he just sort of says blankly at her, if you remember. No, I don't. Okay. Well, the way the scene plays out, I do remember it quite well, is that, um, He's been in this quarantine space and he's behind the glass. And then she first is allowed uh, entry and she comes into the room and they, and she walks slowly towards the glass and he turns around and looks over and just looks at her kind of impassively for a while. And you're like, how's this going to play out? Is he still going to be a dick? Right. And, um, and then eventually he reaches out and makes a gesture. It's kind of showing that, like, well, he's changed a little bit. Like, he's gone on the moon, and now he's a little bit better. Well, yeah, but I, I feel like... But I feel like... I mean, the, the entire, like, symbolism of the mood for him is, like, this emotional catharsis, right? Yeah. But I liked it... I mean, to my reading of the film, I liked that it was, like... Yeah, sure, he's opening up, like, a little bit, but it's not enough to really, like, actually bridge this divide. But that's... I guess we can have diverging interpretations. Yeah. You guess. Uh, thanks for granting me that ability. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you. I guess. Fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> you prodigious motherfucker. Anyway. So the the thing that I found um, also curious about this film is the depiction of the moon landing itself, like that whole sequence. It gets to the famous moment where he steps off onto the moon and the audio drops away. So we get the silence. Sometimes we get like a 2001-esque breathing in the spacesuit, but mostly it's just silence. And um, he's sort of walking across this void and there's a really nice sequence where you don't actually see Armstrong's face at all because he's got the visor on his helmet down and it's just hyper reflective and it's just reflecting the surface of the moon. You can't see his face at all. So it's just like this empty expression. This is just like this 
weird, creepy spacesuit, like, and you can't see the human beneath it. And it kind of like um, encapsulated Armstrong up until this point. And also the emptiness of the landscape itself, the absence of atmosphere, the absence of sound. It was kind of a, a perfect distillation of what they were trying to convey with his character. And then it ends quite abruptly, right? It, it just seems, it doesn't seem to spend that much time on the moon. And, it, and I'm looking at that in a couple of ways as a bold, deliberate choice or as a missed opportunity. Um, Cause there's a missed opportunity. It just, it doesn't sink in enough. I think if they want to make this one of the focal points of a film about a guy walking on the moon is the moon section. Um, and it kind of ends up receding a little bit into the whole of the film. So it feels like just another one of those trials that Armstrong has gone through, right? No, not necessarily any more significant than anything else he's gone through. And if that is a deliberate strategy on the filmmaker's part, I think that is a interesting choice. Um, I'd be surprised if that was necessarily what they were going for, but it does, it does something interesting when you think it, it kind of renders the moon landing as this abstract achievement. Yeah. Right. Almost an arbitrary achievement that, that and it just kind of underscores the, maybe the pointlessness of, of space travel in general, arms, even Armstrong's whole character and his motivation. Right. But I don't know, like the, I, this is, this is a bad way of, of doing criticism and, uh, and I'm going to do it anyway. Wow. Is to say, like, this is how I would have done that <laughs> uh-huh. if I was making this film. Jesus um, is, is to, like, see a different film instead of instead of review what's there. But I think it would have been effective if we lingered a little bit longer on that weird surface scene. Um, and, and we don't see his face. Like, unfortunately, like, he breaks that spell a little bit when we do get um, the visor lowers down and we do see the non-reflective glass beneath and we see his face pondering like a cavern or something, whatever he's looking at. But if it just, I think if it just held for a moment longer uh, of that impassive, weird spaceman just sort of contemplating this emptiness and maybe the arbitrariness of all his endeavours leading up to this point... And they ended. I think that would have been a good ending, I think, rather than making a play for some emotional catharsis with his family life. Hmm. Guess we disagree on, but what can we, what can you do? I can't offer quite as a uh, articulated and rousing defense of the film as uh, you offered, but I don't know. I liked it. It's a good film. I quite liked it a lot. So there you go. Oh, and I, again, I retract all my comments. <laughs> it reminded me a lot of my father, which is maybe why I liked it more than Did he did. walk on the moon? No. Okay. Oh. Then how did it remind you of your father? <laughs> uh, just Armstrong's sort of... Uh, Moonwalking? Toxic stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not even going to say anything. You, you, no, lost your going, chance. No, you lost your chance, motherfucker. I sit, there, I sit there, I sit there, let you babble, <laughs> babble along with your stupid garbage for, like, 30 minutes, that nary an interruption, and I try to get out one fucking sentence, and two of the same dumb crap, <laughs> <laughs> fuck you, fuck this podcast, and that's it. Alright, anyway, go, resume, resume. No, I'm not going to. No, no, seriously, this will be good for the podcast and for us. <sighs> yeah, I'm going to. I'm sorry. So, was your father emotionally distant and or Ryan Gosling? <laughs> <laughs> okay, nope, I'm not going to. You can't. <laughs> okay, anyway, so. Fuck. 
no, so, no, 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 no. Let's talk about your father, Hunter. <laughs> no. <laughs> let's pretend that we didn't. Um, if you, but if you actually uh, launched into that anecdote in earnest, or that observation in earnest, uh, would you want me to keep that, given that your father may listen to the podcast? Is your father alive? <laughs> My dad's not going to listen okay. to it. Jesus Christ! I was just making sure. Jesus like you've, Christ. I know you've spoken. You've not. You've never mentioned that you that you're fifty percent an orphan, or that. But you've only really mentioned your mother before, which is telling. So I was just making sure. I literally couldn't care less. Let's let's stop doing this. <laughs> no, 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 no. Anyway, you should say you should you should actually put that point. In. No, let's do it. Let's do it. No jokes. No jokes. No, let's do it. Let's do it. Jokes are just just a coping mechanism when it gets too real. So I will I will uh, re- resist. Well, yeah, my father was. Um, I mean, he's less so now. Uh, but when I, he was raising me, when I was especially when I was a teenager, he was uh, somewhat emotionally distant, and I very much related to that aspect of his character. Was what was his career? I mean, he's a contractor. Okay. Interesting. Do you have a... I didn't... I was going to make a contract killer joke, and I didn't, so that was good. Oh, God. (laughs) I literally hate you. Why do we do this stupid Garfield show? It's therapy. No, it's not. I don't feel any better. In fact, I feel worse. (laughs) No, but you have to. That's part of therapy. You have to deal with the pain. You've been repressed. <laughs> no, no, you have to. You have to make yourself feel bad in order to feel better. Uh, I, hate, I, I, I hate you. <laughs> but that is actually good therapeutic practice: is to confront it and feel feel that distance, that alienation that you felt from your central male figure. Okay, so we're done. Uh, first man, go see it. <laughs> no, I had some. I had some more stuff. Oh my god. So, um, <clears throat> one of the things I was, uh, that surprised me about this was how poor the soundtrack was or the score was. Oh, I like the score. Which was Justin, Justin Horowitz again, right? Yeah. Which is his, who's collaborated on all his films at this point. And I, I, I enjoyed, uh, at least some of his work in Whiplash and La La Land. So I was surprised that it actually was him who did the score in this case. So I found it. Uh, too bombastic, especially like the initial moon landing sequence. I, I did not enjoy that uh, obnoxious uh, orchestral music that accompanied the uh, landing of the, the lunar module. Um, and the illusion, the like uh, musical allusions to other works of science fiction, I found were a little on the nose, such as like a Straussian waltz with, during a docking sequence, and also a theremin for Christ's sakes <laughs> in the credit music. So. I don't know. I, I, I was quite uh, disappointed with the soundtrack. Well, I, I like the score, so I don't know what to tell you. Good, good. Great. Let's stop talking about this movie now. And maybe stop doing this podcast ever again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so shall we move on? Yeah. What's the next films that we're doing on the show today? Okay, so uh, next on the show, we will be uh, looking once again, once again, yes, again, at the films of uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender. 
Moving a little bit forward in the 70s to uh, Ali, Fear Eats the Soul, and Fox and his friends from respective years in the 70s, which I didn't write down. Mm-hmm. I guess I could find out. I guess you could. Uh, 1974 for the former and 1975 for the latter. Mm-hmm. So, um, Ali, Fear Eats the Soul. Cue Amazing Song by me. Fear eats the soul Gobbles it up And swallows it home Baby, that was a good song. Nah, it wasn't really to my taste. No? It's kind of like, okay, the first man score to you is me to that song that I just played. That's not bad. <laughs> you said you didn't much care for it, so... Yeah, but I could recognize its competence as uh, recorded music. And if I ever achieve that level of competence, I'd, I'd be surprised. Right, you ready for this? Uh, I, I didn't, don't even remember finishing writing a synopsis of this, but I guess there's something <laughs> in front of me, so let's just read it. Yes. Okay, uh, look, can I try doing it? Yeah, you do it. Okay. <laughs> Webster's defines <laughs> fear. No, Ali, start with Ali. No, that's right. Webster's defines Ali as... All right, go ahead. You sick bastard. This this opening sentence well, is, is just... Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, it's just too good. You ready? You ready? Please. I'm going to I'm going to use a, mu- a musical metaphor here to, to help illustrate. I'm sure I will not understand it. Transposing Douglas Sirk's seminal melodrama All That Heaven Allows from the key of class to the key of race. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> oh my lord. Ali, Fear Eats the Soul, explores the unlikely romance that uh, blossoms between an older widow, Emmy, played by Bridget. That's all I wrote. I didn't, Bridget. I didn't write a last name. <laughs> Bridget. <laughs> Bridget so-and-so. Obviously, I didn't oh finish Oh, my writing. God. <laughs> or I thought I finished writing her name and just... Bridget Mira. Thank you. Thank you. And a younger Moroccan man, Ali, played by Fassbender's then-partner, El Hedy Ben Salah. So I have his name. As with All That Heaven Allows, their relationship is put to the ultimate test as it brings out the underlying prejudice in family, friends, and the broader German society. Which is what All That Heaven Allows was about, the broader German society. Especially in the wake of the Munich massacre. Mm Mm-hmm. That's about it. No, oh, okay. Happens. Yeah. What did you think of uh, Ali, Fear Eats the Soul? And had you seen it before? I had seen it before. And uh, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Mm. I didn't, I didn't uh, finish watching it again for this. Yeah, but you've seen it before. <laughs> yeah, I watched about half of it for this uh, podcast. But I think the last scene that I watched was the one where they go to the... Where that the store guy is racist to Ali. Oh. Remember that one? Yes, I do. So you remember enough about it to uh, comment on it for the purposes of this podcast. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be great. <laughs> um, but anyway, 
you answered uh, one of the questions. But what did you think of it? Uh, it's a good but film. What do you think of it, rather? I do think it's a good film. What do you think of it? Oh, boy. Um, yeah, I think it was a pretty good film. Yeah. Okay, is that, uh, is that good? That's good, yeah. Yeah, let's move on. Stamp of approval. <laughs> thought it was a controlled, uh, effective updating of Serkian melodrama. Yeah. I feel like this is, of the films we've watched, the one that is most directly indebted. I mean, obviously, because it's like a uh, transposing yeah. of the story of all that Hebbett allows. I, I, I like the fact that it, he kind of spikes the melodramatic mixture with um, some unusual ingredients. Um, so there are these moments of existential anguish, which are, are kind of conveyed by these l- scenes that linger a little bit longer than you'd expect. Um, yeah. Often people like contemplating their situation or, or a, a scene in which they're both sitting in a cafe and we get this kind of static framed shot of them looking out of place in this um, bourgeois Hitler cafe. <laughs> um, and we also get sardonic touches, such as the fact that the cafe they choose to go to was a cafe that Hitler used to reside at. and. Yeah, and that Emmy is excited about this fact. Yeah, although Emmy seems to be reasonably progressive in terms of her views on race. Yeah. She unthinkingly speaks about Hitler without any condemnation and, and speaks about the fact that everyone used to belong to the party and all that sort of but stuff. But she was a member of the Hitler Youth. Mm. Um, which I thought was actually a really effective detail. Um, it's not just showing that these characters are beyond reproach and the victims of the broader society, they're also a little bit more complicated than that. If they unconsciously reflect the structures yeah, of the society that... they're a reflection of it as well as a, a yeah. victim of it. Yeah. Uh, and also the fact that... Um, so not just with her and those sort of details, but also with the uh, Ali character. He's not, uh, like, morally unimpeachable or, a, you know, a stereotypical noble victim character or anything like that. No. Um, and in fact, like as he's getting accepted or more accepted into this world, um, mm-hmm. he has to rebel against that in some way. And that's when he, he transgresses with, um, having an affair with the, the bartender or the bar owner and also just, you know, questioning his place, uh, which complicates, which complicates the whole story. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a very tightly controlled, hard to fault in its execution. Yes. It's interesting to note that he decided to make this film as a filmmaking exercise when he had a two-week break in his schedule between other film commitments, which is insane, the fact that he did this in two weeks. Um, And I was watching, so this was on the Criterion, this was a Criterion special feature. There was an interview with uh, Todd Haynes, who famously did his own version of All That Heaven Allows with Far From Heaven. Mm -hmm. Another good film. Which I haven't seen. But he talks, interestingly, about the influence of Fassbender and specifically this film. Um, And one of the observations that I appreciated in his interview was when he talks about the two sequences that show the working conditions of uh, Emmy. Yes. Um, So she's a cleaner in this story. And um, there are a couple of sequences that show her uh, on a lunch break with the other cleaning ladies um, at this particular establishment yeah and there's specifically two that are sort of mirrored yes because they replicate the same it replicates the same shot so um in one of the aforementioned sequences she is 
sort of cast out um, and ignored by the rest of the group because of her association with Ali. So they they uh, display clear racial prejudice um, about the fact that that she is associating with this Moroccan man, mm. and um, they actually move away from her to have conversation in private, and she's left alone on the staircase. And then later in the film, as there is sort of some degree of acceptance of Ali's presence presence in her life, um, things start to change around her, both the treatment of her children and society at large, but not necessarily saying that people are less racist than they were before. It's more like they've moved on to a different target of their hatred. And in this case, in this specific case, um, there's a new worker uh, who has um, replaced someone who got fired at the uh, cleaning establishment and she's getting paid less and they have their own private council and include Emmy in that, but exclude this new worker. Yeah. He's Polish, right? Yeah. And she's just basically taken the place that Emmy had. There's an interesting reflection, reflection there too, of Emmy's first husband being a Polish guest worker. Mm. Um, And what, uh, what Ton Hayde says about that, particular those two sequences is, is that it, it kind of shows that society almost needs to have that yeah it needs to have that out group it's like an intrinsic part of society yeah to make that out group it, so once the emmy gets accepted it just shifts it over to a different person yeah it's, it's like fastman is saying it's an intrinsic part of human dynamics and well at least of west german dynamics mm. of the i don't know if he's making it like an internal quality necessarily um okay so uh ali did we do you think we adjust it enough yeah why it's, a, it's a very very good film <laughs> but i feel like if you're like i want to i i'm interested in this fassbender fella that's i feel like uh, ollie is a good place to start yeah it is it's a good entryway yeah it's very it's a it's a accessible film and i think maybe 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 more than any of the other films we've seen up until this point it the central characters are portrayed most sympathetic yeah the most sympathetically yeah even more than the uh, other film we watched yes uh, which is called fox and his friends will prove in the end you can escape class even without us now i believe you have prepared a summary for this film uh, I appear to have. Let's see what it sounds like. <laughs> you found one on your desktop that you may or may not have written. I don't think there's anything to rival that uh, musical analogy that uh, so God. <laughs> opened up our discussion. <laughs> you need to delete that, I think. Fox and His Friends is the story of a carnival worker, Fox, played by Fassbender, who has a premonition that he will win the lottery someday. In fact, this very Friday, I mean, and by this Friday, I mean the Friday in the film that's coming up. The premonition turns out to be correct, and his newfound wealth, half a million francs, or whatever it is, leads him into a sexual relationship with an upper-class man with a moustache, Ogan, played by Peter Chattel. After their initial encounter, the pair begin a more serious relationship. It soon becomes apparent, however, that Ogan has designs on Fox's money, and he manipulates him into investing into his father's failing business, all the while attempting to elevate Fox's manners and cultural education to reflect his refined bourgeois values. And it doesn't end well. 
<laughs> that was great. I so like the part when you called them Franks. What are they? Deutschmarks. Marks. Yeah. 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 You stupid motherfucker. Okay, so, um, yes, Fox and his friends. <laughs> now I've finished synopsizing it so expertly. <laughs> what did you make of this film? My friend. I, I gotta say, it's it's depiction of carnival class labor was just a little... I don't know, I found it a little troubling. Um, so what did I think of it? Yeah, what did you think of it? Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah? Mm-hmm. What did you enjoy about it? The, the sort of film of it? No, the, uh, the, the screenplay that you bought in hard copy. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. I don't think I liked it as much as uh, Ali or Petra. So Fox stuck white is... Is it just because you're homophobic or... Yes. Okay. So he was um, at least somewhat bisexual, right? Because he... Like, yeah. What's her name? Irma Herman? What's her name? Erm Herman? Yeah. I think. I read that, uh, again, probably on Wikipedia, that uh, he wanted he wanted her and he was uh, uh-huh. infuriated by the fact that she wasn't appeal. She did. He didn't appeal to her. And apparently uh-huh. he beat her near to death. Well, that's concerning. Something like that. There was, there was some quote from her. I didn't, I didn't look much further into it cause I didn't want to put myself off. I just wanted to enjoy these films with impunity <laughs> for our podcast. And not to worry about the troubling implications of Fassbender's personal life, because that's the responsible thing to do, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, let's ignore the parallels between him and, say, the the villains of the film, Fox and his friends, for instance. And the fact that several of his lovers killed themselves, (laughs) including uh, Mr... um, Salem. El Hedy Ben Salem. Yeah, Salem himself. Yeah. So he... he, um, so both he and Fassbender were usually crazy off their heads on alcohol and drugs. Yeah, that's what I read too on Wikipedia. So yeah. and then you know, Salem the went off and stabbed three people non-lethally, and then so he's fine. Fassbender and his friends, or Fox and his friends, if you will, uh, helped smuggle him out of Germany. And then he was later arrested, and the circumstances of his ultimate demise are contested. Um, but one of the accounts yeah. is that he hung himself in, or hanged himself in prison. Mm-hmm. That's good. And yeah. then yeah. Uh, Fox's friends, or Fassbender's friends, if you will, whichever you prefer. His actual name's Fassbender. Fox is just a character he plays in this film. So Wait, really? if it's easier for you, we can just... Wait, that was the director? Yeah, that was the director. We can just say Fassbender. Wow. Um, apparently, uh, I, I guess because of uh, maybe his fragile mental state, they kept uh, Fox's friends, or rather Fassbender's friends, kept the news of Salem's demise from Fassbender until shortly before his death. And then he dedicated his final film to Salem. Yeah. Yeah. Or Salem. Salem. No, that's a uh, city in... Um, no, it's a cat. Massachusetts. Is that true? It's Sabrina's cat. No, really, that's stupid. <laughs> it is true. That's dumb. That's dumb. The black cat is called Salem. Have you been watching <laughs> Sabrina? I've watched some of it and I've, in- I've enjoyed what I've seen. Mm. 
Well, anyway, what's what if I'm curious? I was going to say this last time, but I forgot. Um, I was look because I was looking into the showrunner who came from writing the Archie comics, as well as doing theater work. I think he originally staged like a gay version of Archie that got into trouble with the who copyright did? holders. The showrunner of Riverdale. Oh really? Yeah. And that's now how he's we, written it. That's how we got into writing the comic books, I guess. That's funny. In a long-winded way. But he was initially like, they shut down the production of his gay Archie play. Um, now all he's known for is Archie. But, but the curious thing is because he's actually gay himself. Um, mm. But I still find the the marginalization of the, what's what's the guy's name? I even forgot his name. Maybe that's how, a reflection <laughs> of how much he's marginalized. Uh, in Riverdale? Yeah, what's... The, oh. the, the sheriff's son? Yeah, what's his name again? Kevin. I Kevin. I don't remember. Kevin is his name. You watch but, more of it than I did. Like, the fact that he's such a peripheral character and that he, he's never part of the group, even though, like, he's initially established to be part of the group. So, and that kind of annoys me. And this only storyline he gets is... Um, what they kind of like hint at in season two is like him and one of the more closeted athlete guys. But they just, yeah, in season three, they just continue that story with him occasionally when they can be bothered. And it's not a particularly interesting story in it. And then otherwise, well, it's basically. Neither are you. <laughs> put to the sidelines. And he's put to the sidelines in a way that no other character really is. Like, what's her name gets more to do than he does? The redhead woman. Um, I want to say Mason. <laughs> Forgetting all their names. Whatever her name is. Strawberry. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, Strawberry. Cheryl Wassup. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So she gets a lot more to do than he ends up getting to do. And she was just like initially the antagonist character. Well, she's a complicated character. Yeah. yeah so anyway, Fox and his friends. Poor Kevin. Whatever. I'm just Fuck establishing yeah. my um, progressive credentials Your for this discussion of Fox. Now, when Friends. people accuse you of being um, homophobic when we talk about this film, you'll be like, no, I love Kevin. Yeah. And, and this is my other attempt at establishing a credential, um, I can see the attraction of Fassbender in this film, more so than in some of the other films when he's got that kind of mustache that looks creepy. <laughs> He, he definitely, like, we, uh, slimmed out a bit for this movie. Yeah, I can see, I can see, like, someone being attracted to him. Um, yeah, I get it. I get it. And especially, like, I can imagine him having a certain charisma and confidence about him. Um, yeah, which he probably had in real life. Yeah, that's what I mean. Um, yeah, so I, I get it. But he it. often, he often, he often, you know, cast himself as, like, despicable characters, so maybe that has something to do with it, too. Yeah, yeah. Probably because he was a despicable person in real life. So he, he probably had quite... <laughs> Uh, a lot of success, and maybe that's why the rejection that he received at the hands of uh, Irma, 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 Irm. Irm. you you fucking moron, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so inf- so infuriated him. <laughs> I like that we haven't talked about the movie at all. Yeah, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel. Hmm. Maybe we, should, maybe we should stop these, like, stupid jokes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should just stop doing the podcast. So, uh, Fox and his friends. <laughs> did you think it was good? Yeah? Okay, let's uh, move I, I on. I said I enjoyed it. What did you say? You said you enjoyed uh, it. It's, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty enjoyable. Pretty good. Yeah. 
I do like I do like the uh, the Indian. <laughs> that was very funny. I did too. I, I enjoyed like... that as well. <laughs> Where it just cuts to him being dead. <laughs> I like that quite a bit. So it's not dissimilar to Ali Fear Eats the Soul in terms of its focus on the uh, darker side of social values. Yes. Um, but in this case, it's focusing specifically on class as opposed to the race of Ali Fear Eats the Soul. I mean, there's class, there are in, class. There's class in both. Yeah. But, because um, you can't really untangle those two things. Really. But certainly, certainly that's that's the big focus of this. It's like, it's how um, Fassbender shows Fox is really incapable of being in, accepted, or not not he's incapable. The bourgeoisie is incapable of accepting this. Yeah, um, this Carney, <laughs> this uh, member of the uh, <laughs> carnival class, this lowly carnival worker. Um, a carnival class worker into into their work into their refined world even though he has the the finances to actually back it up and to actually elevate him financially above his class i mean that's initially what attracts ogan to him essentially is the fact that he has that money and he can use that for his own ends um so that's i mean that's the central thing i watched an interview with fassbender uh, about this film with just a brief snippet somewhere or other mm. and he, he talked about the fact that the reason he he chose to the reason he decided to um situate this class story in a subculture in this case a homosexual subculture um was a way of showing that these intrinsic class differences can never really truly be transcended yeah they're reflected in even the outcasts of society yeah yeah so even though the, the subculture itself that um, Fox is being integrated into is an affront to traditional conservative values of the dominant community, um, it still reflects those conservative values. And, um, yeah. But, yeah, let's, uh, let's circle back to the ending. Which, spoiler, he... Uh, he uh, after he losing all his himself. money, after losing all his money and losing Ogan as a partner in his apartment and being cheated out of all that, he uh, overdoses on some pills and some and, Valium specifically. On some Valium, and is found um, prostrate in a uh, train station in a sub. Yes. Some kids just take his stuff, and then uh, who walks up? But a couple of the other characters, the American soldier. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, they are like, "Oh my God, it's it's Fran, it's it's Fox, it's Franz," and they're like, mm, "We can't really get wrapped up in this." And they walk, and he's away. dead already. Like, so there's nothing we can do. So they wonder. Yeah, and then the kids resume pilfering his corpse. Um, and then they, it just holds on that shot for like maybe a minute or two. Mm. <laughs> just, just funny. What did you think of? Uh, Franz in Yugen's apartment versus Petra von Kant's apartment. I preferred Petra von Kant's apartment, I guess. Yeah, it's a little more... It's a little more... I mean, if I was living in one or the other, I'd live in Petra von Kant's apartment, I think. Just because you have all the, the presence of all those um, mannequins. Mm-hmm. So that's what our uh, analysis of uh, Fassbender has uh, been reduced to. <laughs> Which apartment? <laughs> Which apartment? 
Who cares? This is garbage anyway. Yeah, it is. Did you hear the last one? Pretty good. <laughs> I listened to it. I don't. I can't really say it stuck with me. Did you listen? I've just to been it? tired. I did. I just. I've been. I've been very tired recently, and just can't. I can't really remember what it was focus. like. I just remember those, I kept a lot of nonsense in it because I didn't really it's have pretty bad. Choice. Well, I bet you'll do a similar thing here. Most of it is like our impressions of Fassbender. <laughs> oh, uh, do you have an impression of Fassbender? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but can you can you do a singing Idolvice? What's Idolvice? It's a German song. Oh, how does it go? Go. Uh, uh, we will cut the. Maybe you should sing it first as Fassbender, and then I'll do an impression of you singing it. Okay. Perfect. And then I'll just uh, extend that over an hour of the podcast. Nah, never mind. Just forget about it. Alright, forget about it. (laughs) (laughs) Did you you find, um, were you moved by Fox Instruments or was it mostly working on sort of a um, non-emotional register for you? Yeah, no, I didn't really find that much emotional resonance. I don't think it necessarily was going for that much emotional resonance. Yeah, I agree. Because Fox is not uh, as much of a likable character as Ollie and... Uh, uh, what's the other character's name in Ollie Fjord's this all kid? I don't remember. Emmy. Emmy, yes. Um, they're not quite as... He's not quite as uh, interesting or likable. No. He's sort of a bore. But yes. I thought he played him well, actually. Yeah, I agree with that. It's interesting though. There's there's kind of an odd, a little bit of an odd shift. Um, maybe didn't maybe Tony didn't quite um, mesh for me about his character. Was that um, he's initially quite assertive and with his when he's like seducing Peter Chattel. Yeah. And he seems like a different person than he pretty much is at any other stage of the film. Yeah. I think there's sort of like a performative, like, I don't know. But what it, what it made me feel is like, it made me feel like the rest of the time when he talks about being dumb or not understanding things, that there's more going on with him. And I don't think that was necessarily intended. I think it, I think it was maybe supposed to be. No, I think he's not supposed to be just like an idiot. I mean, not a complete idiot. I mean, there's, there's something simplis- simplistic about him, but... I think there are different qualities to him that you could you can read into his into Fassbender's performance the way he's written. I think I, what I what I mean is like he seemed more savvy. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I, but maybe it's just Fassbender being like, I mean, especially at the beginning when he's like, um, sort of like going through the rituals of like hooking up at the public bathroom and stuff like that. It just makes him seem a little more. But I feel like maybe that's because it's still like ground that he's comfortable in right yeah 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 he's in his and then as soon as he starts having like a you know getting into the relationship with yugen and uh being forced to you know try to conform to that the role that's expected he gets undercut by that that he's only acceptable essentially as a as a both a source of sex and a source of wealth yeah to these other people and he's not really anything beyond that what's your uh fox and your friends Song gonna be about Fox and his friends, friends of the fox. What's he gonna do? He's gonna die in a subway station. So I could try and add harmony to that 
bit of audio. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Please do. Great. Uh, uh. Bonus features. Mm. Bonus features. Bonus features. And we gotta get that get to our uh, super secret special interview. That's at the end of the bonus features. Yeah. So let's but so let's get to our bonus features pretty quickly. Yeah. You go first. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So I watched a couple films. Oh, good. Um, Me too. Great. Okay. So um, I watched a movie called Burning. It's a good film. I would definitely recommend uh, if you are listening to this, and which is no one. So I, I would recommend to it. me. I'm listening. <laughs> I would I recommend that you watch it. Cool. Uh, it's a very controlled, sort of slow burn thriller, but it's pretty fun and nice and ambiguous. It has some good class conflict and class resentment stuff that I thought was enjoyable. Um, and some very, very good performances. Like the performances in, say, First Man, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I got you. I watched a film called um, A Short History of Decay. (laughs) (laughs) And that was bad. Uh, I watched a film called Chung King Express, uh, which is a good film. No, tell me about A Short History of Decay. (laughs) Why did you watch that? Well, it's kind of like... It's it's kind of like therapy, but... (laughs) What if therapy were sexy? (laughs) Um, so I watched that. I watched uh, Chunky Express. Have you heard of that one? No, never. Okay, it's a it's a good film. Uh, I watched Pickpocket. Have you heard of that one? No, never. <laughs> it's it's pretty good. You only got four, uh, he... four and a half, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Wow, pulled back on the. Yeah, it's just you know the uh, I just don't really care that much about uh, the religious aspects of it. So. Well, that's kind of Bresson. <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> so um, I don't know what to say. I think yeah, I, I was preferred very well overall A Man Escaped. I liked them both, but I think I slightly preferred A Man Escaped. So I think I you can read... That. I think you can have an existential read of Pickpocket, and it is more satisfying to me than the sort of turn towards uh, Jesus at the end. But, but I think, it, I think it kind of works both ways. Like, I don't think it, like, yeah, I don't think I it invalidates the existential I agree. satisfaction. I agree with you. I agree with you. But... Still, just didn't need it, so that's why I got one half star less than perfect. But that's the so that so that <laughs> that final scene of pickpocket is what um, uh, uh, Schneider. Yeah, and that was like is obsessed. Oh, with and has remade. That's that's times. that's why first man or not first man. That's why first reformed ends in the way it does because of oh, it all makes sense now. I think he's done it a number of times. In fact. Yeah. The um, what's the jiggle? Just a jiggler, I think. Not just a jiggler. <laughs> <laughs> just a jiggler. Just an American jiggler. Wait, he he made that. <laughs> I'm gonna ask him if I ever interview Paul Sh- or Schrader. I think Schrader. Not Paul Schrader. <laughs> <laughs> Schrader. Sorry, I was thinking. Of, I was like <laughs> Jesus Schneider, and I was thinking of Rob Schneider. No, that's not it. But Schrader. Rob Schneider does did do the VO for uh, Mission of Life in four chapters. So. There you go. What really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, he contributed a voiceover track. Does he do the Japanese voice? <laughs> no. It's <laughs> hard <laughs> so to say that there's there's three VO tracks: one by Roy Schneider, one by the uh, Japanese actor, and one by just a random American guy. Roy Schneider, you mean? No, <laughs> Roy Schneider, who's the uh, offspring of Paul Schrader. And <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it. That's it. I've got. I know that. Yeah, Pickpocket's a good film. I would. I would recommend watching it. The Pickpocket scenes are good, aren't they? 
Yeah, they're very pornographic. <laughs> uh, the the bit where he's like already had a thick body is probably my favorite part of any movie. Yeah, it's good. It's a great scene. It's great. I I enjoyed a paper about it that I described. I just have it as orgasmic. So there you go. I think about that all the time when I'm like on a train and stuff about stealing someone's. Just pickpocketing. <laughs> Maybe that's how you make it. And being like pickpocketed myself, like I think about some of those techniques. Um, that's funny. Especially like the one where like they out of their breast pocket and then catch you push the wallet out of the breast pocket and catch it with a newspaper at the bottom of their jacket. I saw a movie called The Conversation. Hmm. Have you seen that? I have. It was the first time I'd ever seen it. I thought it was okay. Yeah, you seemed you seemed uh, a little bit uh, low on that. I thought it was good, but four. So that's a pretty. Oh no! It just backhanded felt, swipe against the I think. The cop, I think. Uh, I think. You know. Um, I. I guess I hadn't realized how indebted it was to like uh, blow up, right? And and by extension, um, the subsequent blowout. No, because it's not indebted to that. Because it came out after the conversation <laughs> did. So, but like uh, it, like it but, like links to both. Right. Yeah, I mean, because they're both about audio editing, which is really weird. <laughs> that both the American versions of blog are about like sound engineering, um, and recording people. But I think I maybe I was a little cool on it because I think both I preferred both blow up and blow out to it. So, mm, okay. um. And I was like, you know, maybe if I was to watch the conversation, I think conversation the conversation is more psychologically grounded than either of those two films are. But I find the sort of exploration of like art and the film as like art criticism to be way more interesting to well done and blow up. And then I found I find blow out to be way more interesting politically and I don't know, just more uh, pleasurable than the conversation. So it's kind of mixed on it, to be honest. But it's still good. It's still very well made and stuff. And I, Gene Hackman's great in it. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, 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 uh. Uh, so I watched a film called Do the Right Thing, which I watched like two weeks ago. So we don't have to go over that <laughs> again. Not two weeks ago. But I watched it a while ago. It's good. Film. Well, no, I didn't watch it a while ago. I watched it pretty recently. Um, it's good stuff. He does the right thing. Directorially. Uh, Yes, and in the movie. And then I had two films, which I saw in theaters, both of which were slight disappointments. One of them Whoa. was um, pretty bad, which was Fantastic Beasts, The Cries of Grindelwald. That's a shock. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I didn't have like the highest expectations for, but I thought it would be like at least yeah, pretty entertaining, because that's how the first one was. It was like kind of disposable, but entertaining. Mm. Um, but it was bad. It was really... Um, it was overly complicated, but also at the same time, there's too many characters, and the there is just a film composed of subplots, none of which are especially interesting. Uh, it's just sort of like whatever, and like nothing, basically nothing happened in the film at all. So there you go. And then I saw the film Widows last night, um, which I thought was it was, it was okay. <laughs> I don't know. It felt like the outline of a movie I really liked, but. It didn't really... It wasn't, like, vibrant. It didn't feel like it had an actual pulse, you know? And it kind of was like, okay. And it, it was a little too... It was very um, totally incoherent. Because at one part, it's, like, very uh, sober and seriously filmed, right? Yeah. But some of the narrative elements are just so incredibly ridiculous that you're like... 
I don't know. It just it there, there felt it felt like the that part and some of the imagery and the plot mechanics are just so like silly and and dumb that you are kind of like it really pushes against sort of the the aesthetic form that it's contained in, right? And I I had some problems with that, and I don't know. It just felt like it's like people are giving it credit for having a lot of interesting ideas, but it never really like coalesces them into anything that's particularly like cogent or telling so i was sort of like okay and it, it sort of had this like very i don't know nihilistic perspective at the end and i was like yeah i don't know if i need this necessarily so i didn't really it's okay but i, I was really disappointed about that because i was actually really excited for it because i thought it was nihilist? a good film really like politically nihilist i'd say okay and it sort of endorses like Trump. because it, it yeah, it says it's, it's weird. Viola Davis comes out and says, "Hi guys, I'm Viola Davis." I like to say, "Me and the director Steve McQueen are both Trump supporters. We'd really like you for to for to uh, oh, wait. for him are you uh, for about... you to vote for him." Sorry, sorry, I thought you were what? still talking about Fantastic Beasts. <laughs> really? Yes. I was I wasn't paying attention. Like I zoned out because I had to send a message, <laughs> and then you were like, "Bloody." You know, I found it a bit nihilistic at the end. I was like, oh, okay. Interesting. I'll go with it. And then I was like, maybe you'll ask. Maybe, maybe nihilism is the right, wrong word for it, but it seemed like Pessimist, slightly... Politically pessimistic, maybe. Yeah, but also it really endorsed like the sort of like, oh, this, these individuals are going to make it for themselves, you know? Mm, okay. And I was like, this seems kind of conservative, actually. <laughs> Even if the peep, the individuals that are being like trumpeted are like, you know, people of color and women. It's still like, I don't know. What did you give that I film? I didn't see that logged. Three and a half stars. Okay. All right, and that's all I got. Cool. So, Widows, pretty disappointing, I think. But it's it's definitely but worth better watching. than the Fantastic Beasts sequel. Yes, definitely. Cool. Um, but I also had like, one of the worst theatrical experiences of my life when I was watching it. So maybe that had something to do with my well, sort you, of like, eh. You will have to explain. Um, so I went to the theater, right? And I was like, all right, it'll be a great time at the theater. It'll be nice and cold as movie theaters often are. Is it warm at the moment? Sick of it. No, it's very cold in New York City. Okay. And, but you know, movie theaters typically lower temperature. Would you, is that how it is in Australia? Yes. So this theater was baking hot <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> it was like so hot, like to the point where I was like sweating Okay, the theater was packed full of people, which, you know, can be a good thing, can be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it was a bad thing, because the people behind us were incessantly talking about everything that was happening on the screen. <laughs> like, to the point where I was like, are they children, or are they high? Because they, like, at some point, they were just, like, literally repeating, like, oh my god, it's him! What is he doing out there? And I was like, what? Shut the fuck up! <laughs> um, so, it was pretty bad. It's pretty annoying. So I might have to see it again. Maybe my opinion would be revised. But I was not so hot on it. Okay. Fair that screening. My turn? Let's get through this. Your turn. Get to our special interview. Yeah. We can't keep our guest waiting. No, he's banging on the... the... How long has he been waiting now? <laughs> 
Uh, seven hours? How long are we recording for? Uh, just two hours and 23 minutes. No big deal. Yeah. This is, we're getting short, actually. We are. We're getting it's better at this. We, we're getting less and less to say. <laughs> less and less to say about anything. Um, <clears throat> um, anyway, so I watched uh, two more um, films in the Edward Yang series that's going on at the moment at one of our cinemas. Taipei Story. So it was uh, from 1985, uh, directed by Edward Yang and starring and co-written by fellow new Taiwanese cinema stalwart uh, Hu Xiaoxian and also Yang's future wife and singer, Sai Chin. Uh, I thought Taipei was very, very impressive. Like the city? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, so, so like... Like Yang, some of Yang's other films, uh, particularly A Brighter Summer Day, which I saw uh, the previous week, um, it deals a lot with tai- Taiwan's identity and the way it is situated between these uh, dominant cultural influences, uh, in this case from China, Japan and the USA. So it in- involves uh, a former baseball player, so that's where we get the integration of the, of the American cultural influence. And uh, an office worker who kind of represents um, capitalist modernity. And uh, they have this weird, they're like former childhood lovers who have this weird, not quite relationship. And both of them are kind of equally disaffected, but in different ways. Um, And uh, so it has a lot of that uh, urban alienation kind of feel. And... um, I, I think I actually preferred it to A Brighter Summer Day. Though I think wow, um, really? I would like to revisit A Brighter Summer Day on another day. On <laughs> another brighter summer day. To revise my opinion about it. Because I think there's a lot there to grapple with. Okay. Well, what else did you watch? Terrorizers. Uh, so that, that, I think that was his next film after Taipei Story. The Terrorizers. Uh, less well known. And it's... A little bit of a misfire, but uh, kind of an amusing and enjoyable one, I would say. Uh, I also watched uh, an early triumph of Mizuguchi, Osaka Elegy. Uh, and it's about uh, a quote-unquote fallen woman. Wait, quote, fallen woman, unquote. Wait, I thought that, I thought that was one of his other films. It's all his films. <laughs> oh, no, that was my joke. But what I liked about this is it doesn't depict her like purely as a victim of, the, of her circumstance. So it's just, it's got, it, so it's 1936 and it's worth watching just on its uh, technical accomplishments alone. Uh, some amazing uh, dynamic camera movements and uh, depth of focus shots. Deep focus shots, I should say. Pre-Citizen King. Wow, so it sounds like uh, Wells really ripped off. Basically. It's like Citizen Kane if it was good. I hate you. Uh, so, Psych Allergies is amazing and uh, another... It's Citizen Kane rips trash. Uh, I also watched All That Heaven Allows, which we already talked about, and it's great. Would you, okay, would you prefer All That Heaven Allows or Ali? All That Heaven Allows. Wow. All That Heaven Allows is, is beautiful. It is. I yeah. love I, okay. I love how okay. like, I didn't expect the you know there's that t- sort of Technicolor cliche that it kind of it's kind of based on this type of film right 
But I, I didn't expect of, of, of how extreme and abstract some of the colouring actually gets, uh, which I really yeah. enjoyed. Very interesting that you And it seemed that. very ahead of its time because that that's quite a common thing at the turn of the next century. Okay. That's an interesting comment. Is that it? Yep. That's <laughs> right, the end. So, uh, well, well, guys, um, we've reached the end of the, sh- the, the normal parts of the show, but um, we still have more content coming up to you. Um, Let's oh, play the just, theme uh, song <laughs> to this section. Special guest. Special guest. All right, so um, who is our special guest today? Do you want to introduce him or should he introduce himself? Uh, well, I guess it's up to him. What do you think? Yeah, what do you think, um, Mr. Zane? This is Billy Zane, and I don't know. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining us. First have, of all. have you listened to the show? Have you listened to the show before? Um, yeah. Really? Probably the most. I think my favorite. Uh, Wait, it's your favorite show? Like of all the shows? Like, do you listen to me? Like, no, no. They, they can't be. They can't be accurate. You, you, you couldn't have listened to too many podcasts. I mean, yeah. ours is not bad, but it, it's not the top. Is it just that Wait, you've you're had saying, limited exposure? Or? Uh, no. Really? Okay, so you said you said no. So it's actually the best podcast. You've listened to every other podcast to compare it to. Wow. And you'd say that this is the best one? Yeah. There's scads of them. Oh, God. I'm... Well, I feel so kind of embarrassing. I don't know what to say. <laughs> like, yeah, just... thank, thank you so much, Billy. Like, we thought the dynamic <laughs> would be like us fawning over you. Wait, like, wait, wait. Because you're wait, Billy wait. Zane, and who are we? Wait, okay, okay. Just, just to get the... Uh, uh, if I can understand what you just said... Just make sure I got it correctly. You're saying that doing this podcast with us is, is more important to you than doing Twin Peaks was. No. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that makes sense. So, would you like to tell some sort of funny story or uh, in and out from your own, your private life? I've um, I've shown paintings for five years now, to to fairly great response, which is nice. And in, you know, at the uh-huh. freeze. And I just did a show in uh, Budapest to benefit uh, the refugee crisis at Kalati Station, which exploded while we were finishing filming there and dedicated all proceeds to that. We, uh-huh. I had just finished filming um, the pilot for a series, which just got picked up now in for uh, ABC, their new platform, hashtag Freeform. I'm speaking of hashtags in the social space. I'm about to launch my website at, uh, for the first time I've kept my domain for ever for some weird reason, as if by design. At this particular moment, around the same time, I'm just turning on the lights to a, a YouTube channel um, embedded within my website. Website being BillyZane.com. Twitter handle and Instagram is at BillyZane, and um, YouTube. Uh-huh. We were filming in Budapest, and uh, we wrapped the show. I, they asked me to create five pieces for the show, five paintings to be used on the cam on camera. Um, they wanted to pull some that were in gallery archive in London, but it was took too long, so they said, can you make more? I did, they filmed them, and then um, uh, a gallery wanted to do a show before I left, and I said, great, uh, well, let's sell them here if we can. And then this uh, crisis blew up, and thousands of, of Syrian refugees flooded Kalati Station three blocks away. So we went down and brought uh-huh. basic needs and you know shampoo and diapers and tampons and food and whatever else, you know, someone needs having been on the road. Uh-huh. And uh, a friend of mine, an artist, wonderful artist um, named Sofia Vari was, uh, started doing uh, art therapy on the way to uh, set and showed me these photos painting with kids on the floor uh-huh. 
with chalk, gave her her pastels, and they were just doing anything to while away the time. So we immediately brought a bunch of um, art supplies and handed out as many as we could so they, they could actually do something a little constructive and fun. But then it became immensely therapeutic, and the art wall grew into mm -hmm. a kind of a significant offering where people of all ages were projecting their experience of that journey into art, and it was... Uh, Stunning and moving and beautiful and harrowing and and then uh, it was at that point that I did the show and brought the Red Cross on to distribute proceeds and it was cool. Most of the shows I I mean I've give more than I don't know five paintings a year to different charities to raise money on auction. Um, it's a very popular space. It's nice to sell a couple, but you know you got to give them you know got to do what you can. That was a bit of hands on, but this show at uh, Leica Gallery, which you can look up through the, on the Wow, that's so fascinating. I, I'm touched, honestly. Okay, we'll see ya. Southbound home.